Would you now open your Bibles to 2 Kings? And try not to groan as you do so. Because of this church's practice, where we ordinarily preach through entire books of the Bible, or at least large swaths of those books at a time, you don't often have to suffer me preaching my whims and hobby horses. But every once in a while, there will be an exception like this morning. You thought you were done with First and Second Kings. If you've been following along our Trinity together, uh, Trinity reading together plan, you know that we've been trudging our way through this history of all the kings who did right in the eyes of the Lord, who did evil in His sight. You thought you were done, but we're going to take this morning to rehash things just a little bit. Maybe it will even help help you connect the dots, because. If you're like me, it's easy to get confused with all the kings of Israel and all the kings of Judah and everything that's going on. And if we connect a few dots, it might even come in handy this next week, because guess what? We start Chronicles, and we're going to really rehash a lot of this. So, so Chronicles is going to have a greater focus on David and on Solomon and on Judah, the southern kingdom, rather than Israel after the kingdom's divine couple of reasons for this sermon this morning. One is practical. We finished John finally last week. My plan, Lord willing, is that the Sunday after Easter, we'll begin working through Genesis. Right? And some of your eyes just got as big as saucers. Oh no, Genesis. That's like 50 chapters. Um, Fear not. We're going to take it in chunks. Right? We're going to do Genesis 1 through 11. We'll stop before we get to Abraham. We'll go to something else, and then we'll come back for the life of Abraham, and then we'll stop again. We'll do it like that. So that's the practical reason. I've got a couple of weeks to play with before I'm ready with some introductory work done on Genesis. The other reason is theological. It has always intrigued me reading First and Second Kings and also Chronicles. All this repetition. There's a bit of a formula going on for describing these kings, their rules, and their reigns. And the formula goes something like this. So-and-so was this age when he began to reign. This was his mama's name. And he reigned for X number of years. And he did good-slash-evil in the eyes of the Lord, much more often evil than good. Now, the part that really piques my interest is that for the few guys who do manage to do good, even when they do manage to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, there's almost always a disclaimer. There's almost always a but. Uh, Nevertheless, So-and-so did right in the eyes of the Lord, yet the high places were not removed. See, it's a big asterisk that gets attached to their rule and to their reign, and it happens over and over again. Don't take my word for it. Let's zip through several of these examples real quick. They'll be up on the screen, and they're actually the references that are in that set of parentheses there on your outline. 2 Kings 12. 
In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Here it is. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. Second Kings 14. In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Second Kings 15. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. One more further down in that chapter 15. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. There are more, but I think you get the point. This pattern perplexes me. This incomplete repentance, this partial obedience. Now, usually when things get repeated in Scripture, they're important. Their repetition is instructive for us. So I've wondered about this for a long time. Why does this keep getting repeated over and over again? Why are the high places not torn down? And what are we, 3,000 years later, supposed to learn from this? That's, that's our goal this morning, to figure that out. So let me give you a, a road map. It's there in your outline in the worship folder, if that helps you follow along. I, I did just a, a ton of reading trying to make sense of this, trying to wrap my head around why the high places weren't torn down, and made a lot of observations along the way, and I came away with what I hope will be some helpful insights. Number one, we're going to look at what are these high places? Why are they so bad in the first place? Number two, why they didn't get torn down the majority of the time. Three, what it was about the three men who did tear them down. And four, what we ought to take away from this regarding our obedience, regarding our repentance. So what are these high places that get mentioned so frequently? Well, if you will remember, God has given a lot of very clear, explicit instructions to his people about not intermarrying with other peoples. The reason wasn't xenophobic, it wasn't racist, it wasn't elitist, it was theological. 
The Lord knew what would happen to his people's hearts. And if God's people weren't supposed to intermarry, how much more the leader of God's people, the king. But unfortunately, it's very early on in the monarchy under Solomon's reign that the high places become a big problem. We'll glance back at 1 Kings 11 for this. You can turn there or you can follow along on the screen. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Oh, Solomon, once so wise, sets in motion centuries of further idolatry and disobedience. Now, these high places, they may or may have not all been geographically elevated, some I'm sure were, but they all led people astray. The least heinous of the high places were simply alternate sites, alternate locations for the the worship of Yahweh that had become a bad habit for God's people down through the years. It's another example of people doing what was right in their own eyes, what they thought would be okay to do to worship God instead of how and when and where he had prescribed. But it was early on in 1 Kings, early on in the reign of Solomon, that they were worshiping in the high places, and rather than stamping it out, Solomon tolerated it. And then by the end, he's not just tolerating others doing it, he's in full-blown apostasy himself. He himself is building these high places for the nastiest of the pagan deities. In many ways, Solomon is the beginning of the end. He is the last king to reign over a united empire. After Solomon, the kingdom splits. Israel's ten tribes to the north, Judah's two in the south. And it is a very mixed bag, mostly bad, after that. In fact, Israel in the north never has a single good king. Jehu is as close as one comes, uh, and and he was certainly not purely a good king. There were a handful of good kings in Judah, but as we read all those examples earlier, even the good kings couldn't get the job done 
Almost all of them had that asterisk after their reigns and that repeated, nevertheless. Now, a couple of thoughts on why the high places didn't get torn down. Why these otherwise good kings didn't tear down these places of pagan idol worship. Now, bear with me just a moment. This is my conjecture. So receive it carefully. I don't think these otherwise good kings failed to take down these high places because they themselves were all that interested in worshiping these pagan deities. Those false gods were not their idols. But I think they probably did fail to tear down those high places because of the idols they did worship. They weren't worshiping Chemosh and Molech and Baal. They were worshiping power and control and approval. I imagine the inner dialogue going something like this. Gosh, you know, these people, they really seem to like their high places. They probably would not look very favorably if I tore them down. My approval rating would probably take a big hit. They might revolt. I might lose the throne. I think those kinds of thoughts are much more likely to be the reason that the high places didn't get torn down. And that's a problem. They should have been taken down. Righteousness and holiness should have been the deep and abiding concern of these kings. And God's not letting them off the hook for it. He always points this omission out. It's a black mark on their records. Dr. Dale Ralph Davis preached here six or seven years ago for a missions conference. I think it was about Jonah. He's got a great, great little series of commentaries on these historical books. I leaned heavily on his Second Kings commentary for this. Here's what he had to say. Yahweh never fails to mark every negligence shy of full devotion to himself. After three or four times, we respond with, well, that's just about all you can expect from the kings of Judah. But that's not Yahweh's attitude. He is after total devotion. He's looking for another David. He's satisfied with nothing less. But if you looked closely at all those examples that I read you, David was not the standard that those kings were comparing themselves to. They were just comparing themselves to the previous king. I just need to do as good or maybe a little bit better than he did. But nothing like great King David. Now, talk about asterisk. <laughs> right, if we're going to lift up David as the gold standard, we're doing so with kind of a sideways glance. Right? The gold standard for Adultery and murder, David isn't without some huge black marks on his own record. But when it comes to worship, when it comes to loving God, heart, soul, and strength, at the end of the day, he is remembered in Holy Scripture as being a man after God's own heart. I don't think David could have stomached 
the existence of these high places. All this competing pagan worship that they inspired and facilitated. Now, before we move on to the men who actually did tear these high places down, I want to point out a glimmer of gospel hope that I saw here. It struck me that even though the obedience and the repentance of these otherwise good kings was lacking, it was incomplete, it gets an asterisk, they're still regarded favorably in God's holy word. Somehow, some way, God still chooses and finds a way to bless them and to use them in spite of their incomplete and partial repentance and obedience. Isn't God a gracious God to do that? Isn't that good news for us that he does that? I know it's good news for me because that's all I ever offer to the Lord is incomplete repentance and partial obedience at best. I've never once repented perfectly I've never once repented where my tears of repentance didn't still need to be washed in the blood of Jesus. I've never once obeyed so thoroughly every I dotted and every T crossed that there wasn't need for grace. When I've come close, my motives have still been shot through with sin. I'm still struggling to tear down the high places in my own heart. How gracious he is, how patient he is with my and your incomplete and partial repentance and obedience. That refrain, that pattern of did right in the eyes of the Lord, yet it gets repeated so much that when you hear something different attached to did right in the eyes of the Lord, it really stands out. And you say, whoa, what's going on here? Three times we hear of a king who did right in the eyes of the Lord and tore down those high places. Now, what do they have in common? They all get a favorable comparison with King David. The first one has us back in 1 Kings. The kingdom splits after Solomon. Judah gets two bum kings that did evil. And then the third king, after, after the kingdom splits, the third king in Judah does a little bit better, King Asa. 1 Kings 15. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she'd made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. Oops. All right, so... We'll just count Asa as, as half. It was 2.5 kings who did good and, well, actually, Second Chronicles 14 has a little bit more favorable take on Asa. So apparently 
the writer of First Kings was looking at, did you fully complete the task as to whether I'm going to report that you tore down the high places or not? Chronicles seem to give partial credit because he tore down some of the high places, tells us about in Chronicles. Still better than the rest who hadn't torn any of them down. Judah would go many, many more years, around 200 more years, after Asa, before there would be another tearing down of the high places. Because they keep getting built back by the evil kings. King Hezekiah would be the next one to tear these high places down. Second Kings 18. In the third year of Hoshi, son of Ella, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. That's just, Calvin says our hearts are idol factories. We'll come up with anything to worship. We'll even take something so good as as the bronze serpent from Numbers 21 that Moses lifted up in the wilderness and caused the snake venom coursing through their veins to no longer be fatal. We'll even worship that. But Hezekiah gets the job done. Now, what makes the difference? Why is he successful where others have failed? Why no asterisk for Hezekiah? No, nevertheless, after his name. If you keep reading, I think you find the answer. Verse 5. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord, He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Now, how does Hezekiah have the gumption to tear down high places even if the people really wanted them to stay? He trusts God more than he does the opinion and approval of man. It says in verse 6, he held fast. Literally, that's he clung, just like Genesis 2. When a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, that's it. He clung to the Lord. Now, Hezekiah's reforms were thorough and impressive, but his premier virtue was his faith. He trusted in the Lord. Now, asterisk time, if you keep on reading, this faith wasn't perfect. Eventually, this king that he rebelled against, he eventually tries to submit to him, and it doesn't go very well. It was an overall trend of faith that still had its share of lapses and falterings. Doesn't all of ours. Now, in the flow of things, we go right from one of the very best, Hezekiah, to the absolute worst in Manasseh. He undoes all of Hezekiah's reforms and then some. He takes Judah to a place far worse than before Hezekiah started reforming. He even burns his own son as a burnt 
offering. Now, if you really want to be perplexed and frustrated and wrestle with the Lord over something, take a good look at Manasseh's reign. There's no adversity that he faces. It's the longest reign of any of the kings of Judah or Israel. He gets a peaceful burial in a garden. And if you're like with me, you're crying out with the psalmist from Psalm 73, why, O Lord, do the wicked prosper? Why? I don't get it. He does. He does. It makes you question why. But fortunately, after the worst of the worst, comes one of the very best in terms of earthly kings. This third king who does something about the high places is Josiah. And we begin his story in 2 Kings 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bosketh. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And if you keep on reading in chapters 22 and 23, you see that Josiah's reforms were total and comprehensive. If anything, they're a little over the top. His reforms are, wow, he doesn't just tear down the high places and altars. He goes to great lengths to defile them, to blatantly desecrate them. He digs up bones of dead people and burns on their altars to make them unusable. uh, unusable. He even goes so far as to sacrifice the priests of these false religions on those altars and burn their bones too. It is shocking what he does. But it's not the most shocking thing. See, the most shocking thing is that all these reforms were for naught. They didn't make a bit of difference, and Josiah knew they wouldn't make any difference. See, things got so horribly bad with Manasseh. God was pushed to the point of no return, and he said, Judah, you're done. Judah, you're done. 2 Kings 21. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. You see, Israel had already fallen at this point. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. So Josiah knows what's coming. In the rest of the story, here's how it kind of shakes out. Hilkiah, the high priest, finds a lost copy of God's word, the book of the law, likely a portion of or the whole book of Deuteronomy. And they read it. Josiah reads it and he weeps and he tears his clothes 
because he's so heartbroken over the state of Judah and how far they've fallen from God's law and from God's word. And so he sends people to inquire of the Lord. Sends people to a prophetess named Huldah. In essence, asking God, is there any way that there could be some reprieve or some, some change? Would you relent? Would you change your plans? And the answer is an emphatic no. It is an emphatic no with a small side of mercy attached to it. He'll delay it just a bit, and he'll allow Josiah to die before he has to witness all of this. So Josiah is actually killed in battle, and that's a, that's a mercy of the Lord to keep him from seeing all of this unfold that's about to unfold. But here's the amazing thing. He finds out all of that before he does any of his reforms. He finds out it is an absolute lost cause. There's no way the Lord's turning back his angry hand. That's when Josiah does all his reforms. See, his repentance, his obedience is not a lever for him trying to get something out of God. It's not buttons on some divine vending machine that he's furiously trying to press in the right combination to get God to do something for him. He obeys because God is worthy of obedience. Let me give you a couple of final thoughts from Dr. Davis because he says it better than I can. Josiah's is a faithfulness that does not confuse obedience with pragmatism, and so pushes on. Not because it will change anything, but simply because God demands it. Obedience without incentives is likely genuine. He goes on to say, Josiah went ahead with the Reformation solely for the sake of the honor and righteousness of the Lord. The Lord has a right to be served, even if our service does not bring about our salvation. We, we don't repent and obey. We don't tear the high places down in our hearts and in our lives to get something from God in terms of reward, nor do we do it to try to keep from getting something from God in terms of discipline or punishment. We repent and we obey because God's holy and righteous. He requires holiness and righteousness from his people. He's worthy of receiving it. God, would you help us to see you as you are? And as we see your holiness and your righteousness, would that shine a white, hot light on our high places that we've yet to tear down? Would you show us how we've been happy to compare ourselves to others rather than to our great King, Jesus? Would you show us where we've been living by a lesser standard? Would you show us, of course, how we can never meet your standard, but Jesus has met it for us? And being loved like that is what changes us. Being loved like that is what enables us to seek to live righteously and 
holy lives, to, to seek to trust you, to seek to cling to you, though we do it falteringly and stumblingly. Oh God, thank you for your grace, even that we see here in these kings who failed to get the job done, those who did get the job done but then continued to fail. Oh God, we're so in need of your grace. Thank you that we find it every day, just like we find your new mercies. Help us now as we prepare to come to the table and receive more grace in our time of need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.